Hello, my name is Jonathan Seyfried, and this is a Socialist Reads Atlas Shrugged. And I am the self-proclaimed socialist doing a close reading of Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand. Today's episode I'm super excited about because I get to riff on the character of Dagny Taggart for a little while. And before we do that, I want to go into our moment of non-contradiction because it relates to the beginning of the scene that introduces Dagny Taggart officially in the novel. So for today's moment of non-contradiction, I'm going to YouTube. Today's moment of non-contradiction is actually not really a comment as much as it is this YouTube video that just really was astonishing to me. So when you go onto YouTube and type in Hallie Fifth Concerto, what comes up, and I'll link to this in the show notes, is a video that plays a selection of images that are meant to evoke the Colorado scene that is the one that appears at the end of the novel with the secret society, and uh, also images of the novel in different ways. And what's playing is music that the person who posted this claims is the actual Halley Fifth Concerto theme. So the title of the video on YouTube is Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged Actual Halley Fifth Concerto Theme. And one of the commenters on the video asked, could you please post the composer and the name of the track? So that was not originally done. Uh, the poster here, their name is Michael Brown, and they, they didn't post this information initially, but when asked, they did reply. And here's what they write. Quote, of course, it's Hans Kindler's transcription of the Fountain Duet in Act 3 of Musogorsky's Boris Ogudinov, rather rare record now, was almost if not totally self-produced by Kindler, who was well known in his time. In the description of the video, what the poster says is that in conversations that he had with someone who was interviewed in a book of interviews about Ayn Rand called 100 Interviews About Ayn Rand, you'll see it. I'll, I'll link to that in the show notes too. Well, someone says that they heard from Ayn Rand that this was the piece of music that was being used in her mind as she was writing about the Halley Fifth Concerto. This, my friends, is a stretch, I think, as you can tell by the way I'm explaining it. And 
it just really hits home to me how into it some people get when it comes to this book how driven they are to be to be linking and making links i guess maybe better phrase making links between what appears in the book and what exists in the world there is a real kind of fandom associated with atlas shrugged that i think you just don't see all that often i think that in last episode's moment of non-contradiction, the comparison was made between Atlas Shrugged and Lord of the Rings, I think it's a really, really good comparison because the kind of devotion that the fans have to this piece is on that level where someone will go so far as to like search out and then post, this is it, I found it, this is the piece of music. When in all reality... My feeling is that this is an imaginary piece of music, that it's it's not meant to have a sort of secret connection to an actual concerto. That would kind of go against the whole purpose of this. It's supposed to be something that's just such a amazing song, melody, and so on, that it's it's hardly possible that someone in our our world are our actual world, not the ideal world of this book, but in our actual world that it could be created. That's kind of the whole point of it. So today's moment of non-contradiction once again highlights just how much people out there want the world of Atlas Shrugged to correspond to the reality of our world. Something you really got to keep in mind. And it's, it's kind of awe-inspiring in a way that uh, people would go that far. <laughs> so, I don't know. Uh, that is our moment of non-contradiction today. And now, let's open the book. Okay. On page 20 of my edition of Atlas Shrugged, we have Dagny Taggart introduced by name, eventually. And this is the second time we see Dagny Taggart. Remember, the first time was in that childhood memory of Eddie Willers. But now she's in the present when it comes to the time span of the book itself. She is on the train, and she hears this amazing piece of music who she can connect to a particular composer that she knows. And I think everybody, you know, is able to do that. You know, they, they hear a certain melody, they hear a certain tune, they're like, oh yeah, okay, that's the distinctive sound of that particular composer. And then after hearing this amazing one, which she's never heard before, even though she knows exactly the composer, she realizes at the end of her kind of sleepy-headedness experience of this music that it's not the actual music of a concert ensemble, but it's instead just the whistling of one of the workers on the train. But before she realizes that, in this kind of sleepy-headed, almost meditative state, you could say, she is really swept up 
in the music. And this is a paragraph that that I think is worth reading. So these, well, the long one and then the short one right after. So page 20 in my edition. Quote, She sat listening to the music. It was a symphony of triumph. The notes flowed up. They spoke of rising, and they were the rising itself. They were the essence and the form of upward motion. They seemed to embody the every human act and thought that had ascent as its motive. It was a sunburst of sound, breaking out of hiding and spreading open. It had the freedom of release and the tension of purpose. It swept space clean and left nothing but the joy of an unobstructed effort. Only a faint echo within the sounds spoke of that from which the music had escaped, but spoke in laughing astonishment at the discovery that there was no ugliness or pain, and there never had had to be. It was the song of an immense deliverance. She thought, for just a few moments, while this lasts, it is all right to surrender completely, to forget everything, and just permit yourself to feel. She thought, let go, drop the controls, this is it. Unquote. Doesn't that sound like meditation? It's so interesting because... When Buddhism is mentioned in this book, and it's mentioned only briefly, it's mentioned with total derision. It's referred to on the part of someone who is completely worthy of disdain in the opinion of Ayn Rand. Basically, there's a moment where someone says that they're just going to be Buddhists and they're going to live on soybeans forever. And that's seen by Ayn Rand as the perfect encapsulation of giving up and uh, relinquishing your purpose as a human. And yet, I feel like Ayn Rand probably didn't study Buddhism all that much, (laughs) it would be my guess. And Unintentionally, perhaps, Ayn Rand has hit on some Buddhist themes when talking about Dagny's experience in connection with this amazing music. Unobstructed effort is a phrase that's in there, right? Nothing nothing but the joy of an unobstructed effort. No ugliness, no pain, never had had to be. All these things are something that if you do Buddhist-style meditation, you're going to be practicing. You're creating the mind space to be free of all of those worries that nag at you, to just let it go. So perhaps, perhaps unintentionally, Ayn Rand created a character here that exists beyond what Ayn Rand had meant for this character to really mean. And when we talk about Dagny Taggart as a feminist hero, we can link into perhaps an unintentional creation here on the part of Ayn Rand. There's definitely moments in this book where feminists, authentic feminists, would be extremely frustrated with what Dagny does and some of the things that she says. But the overall impact of this character is wonderfully feminist 
in my opinion, but you know, uh, I do the best I can to understand feminism, but without the personal experience of being a woman in our society, I am limited, obviously. But let me just talk about Dagny Taggart for a moment. Dagny Taggart in this book, I just want to plant this seed for you. Dagny Taggart in this book really reminds me of the Count of Monte Cristo. I don't know if you've ever read that book, but it is just a wonderful, wonderful read because there's something about us as humans that respond to a tale of vindication and revenge-fueled justice. We just love when people who have done wrong get their comeuppance, and it's carried out in a way that feels to us like perfectly deserved, that the the way that the revenge is carried out is perfectly in proportion to the harm that was done. And not only that, but when the hero, the hero comes back and is able to right the wrong, we feel like that particular person has fulfilled something that energizes us. I think we all have in our hearts the desire to be a force for righting wrongs. And to see a hero do that with such effectiveness and panache as the Count of Monte Cristo is just a a wonderful ride to go on. And I really felt as I read Atlas Shrugged the first time that Dagny Taggart was a character who went on just such a journey. Like, I could really call Dagny Taggart a Count of Monte Cristo for the Industrial Age. So, that's my overall framework here, and it's going to probably be a controversial one. I'd be curious to hear what any of you think. So definitely send an email to me if that comparison inspires any thoughts. I would love to hear what you think of it. Um, My email is in the show notes as always. It is socialistreads at gmail.com. So what we see here with Dagny Taggart over the whole arc of the novel, is a wonderful journey of self-actualization, but it takes place within this liberating context for her as a character in which she really is against shame, like internalized shame. She is going to love who she loves, she's going to hook up with who she's going to hook up with, and she's going to fulfill her desire and not be ashamed of it at all. This is completely revolutionary in terms of social norms and gender norms for the 1950s. So, you know, this is a moment where 
I'm kind of cheering on the the unrealistic portrayal, maybe. And I think that that's something well worth really being excited about in the character of Dagny Taggart. You know, you might have had this thought, if Dagny is so amazing, why has she let James Taggart drive their company into the ground? Like, why didn't she just take over? Like, she's certainly smart enough to be able to do some maneuvering and to get James Taggart ejected from his role as president of the company and just kind of take it over. And then, you know, we wouldn't really have a book because uh, it needs a villain and it needs to have uh, the situation decay to the point where, where, you know, drastic measures have to be taken. But when I was thinking about this, I, I kind of thought, well, maybe there's something that matches Dagny's characterization here as an explanation for why she would let James Taggart be at the helm for so long. And what we see over the course of the book is that Dagny really abhors power politics, really doesn't want to get involved in the kind of maneuvering that a lot of the other characters get into. Because what Dagny is all about is pursuing her vocation, vocation with all of the associated tone and context that goes along with that word, that basically Dagny knows what she is meant to do. She's meant to be a builder. She's meant to be an operator of the railroad as part of being an overall builder in the economy, but also for her, there's a pride in the work of making the trains run, making the trains better, building sturdier trains, successful trains, and that's what she's all about. And getting involved in the political maneuvering that would have gotten her to the helm and kicked James Taggart out of it, it's just not the kind of thing that would ever appeal to her. It would be kind of like asking someone to just kind of get into the muck of things and maybe try to convince them that the ends justifies the means. But that's just not Dagny. For Dagny, her focus is to self-actualize with what her dream is, which is to be a builder of this vast transportation network. So basically, I I come to the conclusion that the situation as we find it in the opening of the book is one that matches with Dagny's characterization overall. All right. So we have this moment where Dagny hears this concerto by this amazing composer, an innovator when it comes to music. We talked about innovation a couple episodes ago. And she figures out that it's one of the workers who's whistling it, and she tries to get him to say where he heard it, and he is evasive. And this comes across as weird, because it's like, why wouldn't you just say where you heard this thing? And, well, um, that is the 
the foreshadowing of what we're going to see a lot of, which really frustrated me as I read the book the first time, all these men who just are not giving Dagny the information. And uh, I just, I found that to be particularly enraging and um, certainly, certainly has a very strong thread of sexism in it, right? Like, well, we're the secret society of guys, like old boys club, right? And, you know, we're not going to, let the woman know. So this to me was pretty representative of typical sexism at the time. But I don't know, maybe, maybe there's another way to look at that. um, As you know, once you're involved in the secret society, at all costs, you must not reveal its nature, you know, the first rule of fight club, that kind of thing. So basically what we see in this initial scene is that Dagny is swept away by the music. She's trying to keep herself awake because she is obsessed with driving herself to the limits of her own endurance as a person, as a builder. And she tries to stay awake, but in the end, um, she does not. One one last thing, and, and so basically her falling asleep is, I think, a, a good dividing point in this scene. And then next episode, I'll talk about how she interacts with the conductors. I mean, blatant sexism there. But before I end today's episode, I just want to hit on something that comes up when Dagny is thinking about the composer Richard Halley. And... She reflects on how Richard Halley was so great, but then fame struck him suddenly and knocked him out. And I think this is a really interesting moment to pause and just sit with the difference between fame and success, right? Because they don't have to go hand in hand. Certainly, we can think of artists who were not famous in their time, but highly successful. I mean, the classic example of this is Vincent van Gogh, right? Who was unknown and derided in his own time. And now, today, we see the paintings of van Gogh as the height of achievement, great success when it comes to art. But of course, if you asked Vincent himself, are you a success? I mean, he would obviously look at you crazy and say, no, I'm total, a total failure. So what are the conditions or the criteria that we should apply when we're thinking about the true definition of success? And in a way, I appreciate the moment here where Dagny Taggart raises the truth that fame can be the very thing that ends a success. So with that thought, I will wrap up this episode. 
If you have enjoyed the episode and the podcast overall, please consider clicking on that Patreon link in the show notes. To those of you that are already supporting me on Patreon, thank you so much. I am incredibly grateful for that, and I am so touched that even with all of the roughness of my very first podcast here, you're willing to contribute just a little bit every month to help me keep it going and help me keep it ad-free. So thank you so much for that. Um, Those of you who are not able to right now, do not feel bad about it. You will be able to sometime in the future. So you just keep listening and hopefully getting something out of these various episodes. My name is Jonathan Seifried, and this is A Socialist Reads Atlas Shrugged. Take care.